The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, today our show is about all, a lot of important issues in privacy, and we have a fantastic attorney that actually I, I met her online through some of the technology uh, listservs that I'm on, and I just thought she'd be a wonderful guest. So let me tell you about Tatiana Melnick, who's coming from, to us all the way from beautiful Tampa, Florida. She's an attorney focusing her practice on IT, healthcare, data privacy and security, and regulatory compliance. Tatiana regularly writes and speaks on healthcare IT legal issues, including HIPAA and high-tech, cloud computing, bring your own device, and data breach reporting. She's a managing editor of the Nanotechnology Law and Business Journal, and she's a standing contributor to the Journal of Healthcare Compliance. And she's a former council member of the Michigan Bar Information Technology Section. Tatiana Melnick holds a JD from University of Michigan Law School, Michigan Law School, but she got smart and got away from that cold weather to beautiful Florida, and um, a BS in information systems and a BBA in international business, both from the University of North Florida. So you can find out a lot more about her at our website at kuci.org/privacypiracy. And we have uh, we link to her URL, and you'll see her picture in her bio. And also, you can go to her website at Melnick. That's M E L N I K Legal dot com. So we're thrilled to have you all the way from the other coast. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. I admire all of the work you've done on identity theft and all the the. Um, victim rights efforts that you've undertaken, so I'm really thrilled to be joining you today. Well, it's really fun to meet you because I've, I've seen things that you've written, and I'm just it's always so much fun when we can see these things on the Internet and then get on the phone and get to meet people, and of course, I'm so glad that you're a wonderful guest today. So let's get started. Um, you know, we're living in this information age, right, this electronic age, and so what is it about this, the digital nature of our lives online that presents so many threats to our private information? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, technology surrounds us. It powers our cars. It monitors electricity to make sure that the power grid continues to function. And it helps us monitor our babies, for example. 
in many ways, technology and the companies that produce this technology make our lives easier, allow us to stay better connected to our friends, family, and our colleagues. I think we've all seen the great phone commercials uh, showing us these touching scenes of parents staying connected with their children while they're traveling on business. Uh, and people want to use these great tools to potentially improve their lives, whether <clears throat> it be to stay better connected to their family, to produce a better work product, or to just, for example, take a, take a break and play Angry Birds for a little bit, or uh, maybe, in my case, an entire flight sometimes. <laughs> right. Um, but as your question mentions, we do live in an information age where data is power. And that, from my perspective, is really where the threat to our private information lies. On the one hand, uh, I think we've all seen on Facebook that people tend to overshare, right? They tell people way too much stuff about themselves, and they don't really realize how that information can be misused to their detriment. On the other hand, companies are also collecting a tremendous amount of information about consumers. They're aggregating that data and selling it to anyone and everyone. Uh, the FTC and the, and the Senate, the U.S. Senate, in the last year or so have both shown a great interest in the data broker market, for example. Much of the interest seems to stem from the fact that consumers, one, don't know that all of this information is being collected about them, that it's being aggregated, and two, they have a no means of correcting mistakes. So all of this data that consumers are just giving away is really a hot commodity and will continue to be for the foreseeable future, particularly as we see this growth in big data, courtesy of, of all things, the Internet of Things. Yes. And I, I think that is one of the really kind of exciting and scary things at the same time. You know, I, uh, people are not really aware. It's kind of like the frog in, in the cold water and he, he, the little frog is not aware of what the dangers are until it's too late when the water starts boiling. Right. And, and I think that's kind of like the Internet of Things. Think pe People think, oh, well, that'll be really cool when my refrigerator tells me I need to get some milk and cottage cheese. And then you think, oh, my God, who's going to get that information? What are they going to do with it? Or when my car, the black box in my car is saying everything and, you know, all these things, people are not even really thinking about that all of the challenges that are going to come with the Internet of Things. So let's talk a little bit more about that. And if you could just really um, project your voice, that would be great. Okay. Uh, so the Internet of Things, just to define it for your listener, is really, uh, for your listeners, is really products being connected through the Internet, whether that connection is to us via an app or to another device or system. This, of course, means that these pieces of technology must have a unique ID. Otherwise, for example, how would I know that I'm talking to my refrigerator and not to your refrigerator? Right. right? If I want to order more milk, I need to make sure that I'm telling my refrigerator, hey, remind me of this when it comes up. And we're seeing this notion of connected technologies pop up in everyday consumer items, such as refrigerators, baby monitors, um, to even more sophisticated items such as smart grids to allow us, for example, to better manage our electricity and cars, 
which may in the future be able to sense when a driver is having a heart attack and then pull over and call 911. Now, that notion of your car taking care of you instead of you taking care of your car, I think, is pretty powerful and something that a lot of people would really like to have. I mean, that's a fantastic feature, particularly when someone is in danger. But there are also a number of concerns or trade-offs. For example, as you mentioned, you know, people aren't really thinking about how that information is going to be used. People also tend to assume that their technology will just work. But the software that makes the technology work is only as good as the software developer. Since software is developed by humans, at least you know, for now, uh, and humans make mistakes, there will invariably be problems with the technologies. Also, companies that design traditional consumer goods are not necessarily in the business of software development. It may not be, may not be in the best position to design secure software. And that's really what we care about with a lot of these technologies. One, how is that information being used? And two, is it really secure? Yes. Um, on the one hand, consumers, particularly with traditional consumer goods, they're not really thinking, hey, I need to upgrade the firmware because this device is two years old or six months old, and there's been changes in the technologies because the, you know, the designers made mistakes, and now they're trying to cover up or close up those loopholes. Right. Uh, most recently, I think we've seen this with the Foscam baby monitors, which allow parents to monitor their children either through a web browser or an app. And on at least two occasions that I've seen reported, someone was able to hack into the devices and yell at the children. Now, that is probably frightening for the child, Right, if someone is yelling, right? <laughs> right. Certainly terrifying for those parents who thought that this they were the only ones that could see their kid. Right. Knowing that, wow, someone else can break into this device, really terrifying. So from that front, consumers are going to have to be more active in educating themselves in their requirements and making sure they're staying up to date with these regular consumer goods technologies. And manufacturers are going to have to take a more active role in, one, making sure their devices are more secure, and two, making sure they themselves are getting educated and picking a good software development team so that some of these issues are addressed at the beginning. Exactly. You know, we've had um, Ann Kalukian, who has been like the mother of privacy by design on our show several times, and yes. she's a friend of ours. and. You know, that's the thing. I think consumers are really not in a position to do much. They feel impotent because they're not part of the technology team. They see the marketing. The marketers say, this is great. You can see what your baby is doing or hear what your baby is doing. And you can monitor if you're at the movies and the babysitter's home. There's all sorts of things about it. And I don't think that the consumers are really in to even in a position to know about this. And so that's one of the good reasons why we have you on the show, so they at least start to wonder and really start to look into it. But they, they don't have the power. The power is really with the manufacturers. And you know what I was thinking about when you were talking about um, you know the, the benefits and the burdens, and I was thinking about you know people who are diabetic or people who, who need medicine and can't remember to take it, you know, maybe people who are bipolar or whatever, and it would be so wonderful. And I'm sure they're, they're working on these things to have, 
you automatically um, have something, you know, in you know, implanted in you that would release the appro- appropriate amount of uh, whatever it is, if it's insulin or whatever you need, ever any kind of medicine, so you don't have to think about it. You don't have to take a pill. It automatically happens. But at the same time, if we think about what could happen if somebody could hack into that, let's say a senator or a president is getting medicine and then somebody hacks into it and they can literally kill him. You know, so there is this whole issue of privacy by design. You, not only the the guys who are the brilliant uh, inventors who are they have to have help from the privacy people and the security people, right? Absolutely, absolutely. One of the issues I've seen a lot in my practice, particularly with software development and design, is that the development team called DevOps they're not talking to the security folks until after the, the technology or the software, the piece of software has been developed. Unfortunately, at that point, it is so much more expensive to fix these technology flaws and to make the device more secure that a lot of companies are just like, well, we're going to wait and see and see what the market says. If we have to come back and fix these issues, we will, but we won't do anything until after Right, until after we've released the design because, or we release the technology because they're on really tight deadlines. Yes. Unfortunately, that just serves to the detriment of the consumer because, as you've mentioned, they have no idea what's happening and they have very little control to actually protect their information because they're, de- they're relying on the disclosures and the statements of the company. Yes. So, you know, do we need laws to, to require that there is that privacy and, and security built into this into these, um, whether they're a service or whether a new technology, a product, whatever it is, you know, maybe we need laws to require this. I know we, we've had, you know, the mobile devices, there's been all sorts of, um, you know, the Federal Trade Commission has been saying, you know, you have to build privacy in, but it, there's really no teeth in there, is there? There so the Federal Trade Commission is very active among all of the different federal regulators. The FTC is particularly active in staying on top of all of these privacy issues. Um, whether or not you need new laws, I think, is difficult to say because on the one hand, you do want individuals to be protected. On the other hand, this technology is changing so rapidly but it seems that a good approach to use is the one really adopted by the FTC and to sort of look at these industry standards and to say, hey, you need to comply with whatever the industry standards are for your particular technology, for what you're designing. I think the trouble comes in is that a lot of companies, when you look at what they're doing, they're not complying with so-called industry standards. Um, I just spoke with a client earlier today where we talked about what does it mean to comply with industry standards with mobile apps, right, just specifically about this issue. And I made the point, hey, you need to use secure passwords. Do you have, you know, VPN requirements? What are you doing? And, you know, their comment was, well, of course, we think those are industry standards, but really that comes down to who you ask and sometimes not necessarily who you ask, but what does your budget allow? Yes. So to say that, hey, you have to meet X, Y, Z level, I think on some level is good. 
on the other hand, really can be cost prohibitive depending on who the company is. And we don't want to put laws in place that shut out small developers, right? What we want to do generally is to let the consumers know exactly what's happening. And I think the FTC on that front has been very good about clarifying their expectations. Certainly the State Attorney General of um, California has been very good, and California has been on the forefront of these types of requirements and requiring privacy policies, for example. And I know uh, here in Florida, we just recently had a new data breach law that went into effect, and one of the requirements is that anyone that collects personally identifiable information has to take commercially reasonable steps to protect that information. And that, from my perspective, you know, giving it a flexible approach by saying commercially reasonable right, or taking reasonable efforts is very helpful when you're looking at you know, what do I do with new technologies because sometimes it's hard to know until you see how people use the devices. Right, right. And, but how about, um, let me ask you something. So you have industry standards, and many of those are basically listed on the, you know, on the Federal Trade Commission. They talk about the, the standards, what you should be doing. So that kind of sets off what um, industry standards are, but not everything, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely not everything. And we do have certain markets that are much more regulated than others. So, for example, on, in the healthcare space, yes, we have uh, the Office of Civil Rights. We have HIPAA, and, which was recently strengthened in 2009 by the passage of the High Tech Act, where enforcement of HIPAA is now mandatory and fines are mandatory. And HIPAA, if anyone's ever looked at that, there's really detailed requirements in terms of the kind of policies and procedures you have to have, the kind of employee training that you have to have, right? these administrative, technical, and physical safeguards that organizations are supposed to comply with in order to be HIPAA compliant. And now, since the passage of the High Tech Act, we have this requirement for breach notification, right, where now uh, healthcare companies have to notify individuals if they lost their data and if more than fi- 500 or more individuals were impacted as part of the breach, um, they go on a public list where they're listed as the main covered entity, the healthcare provider, and then any of their business associates, their partners, where the breach actually occurred. So certainly these requirements change from industry to industry because what we, what we look at is what kind of data is, is being disclosed, what kind of data are individuals sharing, and how would that impact those individuals if that data was erroneously released, right? Yeah. From the healthcare standpoint, we want to encourage patients to be honest with their doctors. Certainly, they're not going to do that if they think their doctors don't care about protecting their information, right? They're, gonna, they're not going to tell them that they're feeling sick. They're not going to tell them that, hey, maybe they had you know, unprotected sex and now they may have an STD where we need to know those kinds of things so that those patients get treated in a timely fashion. Because we care about those things, because we care about people getting better, we put in stronger protections to make sure that if these disclosures happen, that the appropriate remedies are available to patients. And the one thing that people who are listening need to know that 
that we have these laws, but quite a few of these laws like HIPAA and high tech, you have no private right of action, which means that you as an individual, if you've been injured by some dis- disclosure of your sensitive medical information or other sensitive data, you cannot l- make a, uh, have a lawsuit yourself. You, the, 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 um, the Department of Health and Human Services can take action and there can be fines, but uh, we have to be really transparent about this, that there is no private right of action. And there are many times that the, the actual individual consumer is, is really lost and doesn't get a remedy. Wouldn't you say that's correct? I do, I, and I agree. And I think from my perspective, that actually is quite problematic that in many instances, um, there is no remedy for improper disclosures. But I will note that HIPAA in many, many states now is being used as a standard of care. So depending on the kinds of information that's disclosed and what actually happens in the circumstances, there are remedies under state laws. So there are a number of different kinds of claims that individuals can bring, like um, you know, invasion of privacy, right. breach of contract, depending on what the circumstances were, and things of that nature where they may have remedies there was actually a case out of um, Indiana last year where uh, where a jury, where a jury, not not you know a court, not a regulator, where a jury returned a verdict for 1.4 million dollars against Walgreens when a pharmacy when a pharmacist improperly disclosed a customer's medical information. So this, of course, isn't to say because all of these situations are very specific, and most of them, to be honest, involve the disclosure of STD information, where it is where we, you know, we're under common law. We have a history of treating that kind of information um, as more damaging than maybe just a general release of your medical record, where there is no such history. Right. So certainly, there are issues. Um, the other thing we're seeing a lot of is data breach class actions, where um, particularly where we are seeing um, individuals who have vic- vic- victims of identity theft, mm-hmm. right? Where that is a unfortunately, you know, if you've been a victim of identity theft once, oftentimes you get re-victimized. You know, not only through the remediation process, which can be quite complicated and time-consuming but because your Social Security number is out there. Um, so in general, uh, the, the data breach cases that have been most successful um, in meeting the standing requirements are those where the individuals whose information was lost li- later suffered identity theft. Uh, the one outlier to that case is out of Florida, and that case was against AvMed Inc., which is a Florida-based health plan. Um, the district court in that case dismissed uh, the case twice for lack of standing, but most of the claims were there were then reinstated by the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, holding that plaintiffs had in fact sufficiently established standing and pled injury. Uh, what makes that case interesting, at least from you know to lawyers, is that plaintiffs claimed unjust enrichment on the part of Avmed because plaintiffs were paying monthly insurance premiums, which, according to them, AVMED should have used to shore up their security. 
Right. Right? So in that case, the 11th Circuit allowed the claim to proceed, which was very unusual. Yes. Um, even for those victims who were not, even for those victims who were not at that point victims of identity theft, where they could not demonstrate that they were victims of any kinds of losses. Um, this case, of course, settled earlier this year for about $3 million, but it certainly shows that there are other types of remedies. Is it something that, you know, I think most consumers would, most consumers would be okay with? I don't think so. I think they would love to see more remedy. Um, certainly something that allows them, like you have in California, where they can, sh- where they can plead statutory damages, although that's now been challenged because of the, um, the Sutter ruling. Um, but certainly uh, it's one of those issues that I think uh, that advocates of privacy rights always point you to say, look, it's great that you say that you care about privacy, but how do people actually enforce their rights if, yes. as you say, there are no teeth in the regulation? Right. Um, at the state level, which, I, which has been quite surprising for, for me, West Virginia has become somewhat of a trailblazer. Um, in May, uh, the West Virginia Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Tabata versus Charleston Area Medical Center, where uh, the Supreme Court permitted a class action certification, even though the individuals could not demonstrate that they suffered any kind of concrete in- injury. In that case, the West Virginia Supreme Court said that allegations of breach of confidentiality and invasion of privacy were sufficient to meet the injury in in fact requirement uh, for standing, which, again, has lawyers buzzing because they're wondering, hey, you know, will this be adopted by other courts, by other jurisdictions? Because this was a state-level case. It is the West Virginia Supreme Court. So I would expect, certainly, as we see more and more of these types of cases, that other courts are going to take notice and start looking to see, hey, maybe we can adopt this type of analysis in our state to give our citizens a stronger redress. Yeah, and I and it's kind of ironic. We the reason that we have HIPAA and high tech and Graham Leach Bliley, the whole reason that those federal laws came into being is because there was some. Um, notion that it was wrong, that there was going to be some wrong to people. There is an injury. There is a privacy invasion. And so, so many courts have been denying class certification for people who are worried about identity theft if their social security number is taken, or in that West Virginia case, there was medical records taken. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time. What does injury mean? I think that's going to be uh, a big one. But I think that, you know, for from um, a, a privacy advocacy point of view, there is that whole worry about, well, gee, the Federal Trade Commission is going to find them and maybe find them enough or not find them enough. And yes, it's embarrassing, but the truth of the matter is the, the individuals um, are, are not necessarily going to get redressed, but that may change. So let me ask you something. When we're talking about security breaches, what are some key factors that are contributing to privacy breaches? We're, we're here on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, and we have a, like our own little mini Silicon Valley in the, in the Liso Viejo and all around us and business people driving by. So let's let them know what some of those key factors are. Uh, I, so from my, from my view, uh, 
it's generally really comes down to just one factor, and it's really people. Yeah. Uh, people control the boardroom. They design the software. They conduct the training, right? They set the password policies, and then they use the technology. Somewhere along the line, when you look at the process, every breach, you can trace it back to people. Someone made the decision to implement or not implement more secure technology. Someone decided to steal Social Security numbers and sell them on the Internet. Right. right? Someone failed to conduct a risk analysis after upgrading software. And what I see a lot in the healthcare space, someone decided, hey, you know, that EHR software is going to be so much faster if I just disable that audit function. <laughs> right. Right? It's right. going to work so much better. And those are, you know, I could go on yeah. uh, for days and days with these examples. About that, yeah. But we're just about out of time, so that is a perfect way to end. It's that's it's a, a great explanation. It's people either malicious or negligent or excited or just not thinking. So it's always a people problem. But you are wonderful, Tatiana. We will have you back again. Let's stay in touch, Tatiana Melnick. And you can. Uh, why don't you just give your website? And it's time to go. Thank you. My website is melnicklegal.com, and thank you again for having me on. Okay, we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Tatiana. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org. In the night, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.